Hello and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and today, you guys, we are welcoming in amazing author Sarah Bessie. Sarah, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Now, you're just to give folks a, a little bit of background, you're an author. You've written a, at least a couple of books. I know you've maybe added on some ebooks and other things as well, but you've written Jesus Feminist and uh, more recently Out of Sorts, Making Peace with an Evolving Faith. Um, you're a blogger. You say on your website you're a sometimes preacher. Um, you got four kiddos. Um, and uh, you're a social justice wannabe, but my favorite is that you're a happy, clappy Jesus follower, and that's <laughs> that's quite impressive. <laughs> thank you, thank uh, you. <laughs> I can't even play it cool about it anymore. There's like zero chill. I have zero chill. <laughs> <laughs> well, it says you're a hugger too, so this is like Hi. everybody gets a virtual podcast hug today. There you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, let's just give people before we jump in. Today really is just about. Um, I just want people to kind of hear your heart. I mean, you you write quite a bit, um, and you've just spent a lot of time, I think, reflecting on your relationship with Jesus and um, the nature of how that's worked itself out in your life. And I I just really want to give people a view into your journey and kind of hear from you uh, the path you've walked with that and are walking and some of the questions that you encountered along the way and, and how you've kind of navigated through that. So just kind of as a background... Um, we can talk about sort of your faith, uh, your roots of faith, um, but let's, if we can jump ahead of that for one second, let's start with your first book just briefly, because some people see your name, they see the name Jesus Feminist, and they think, Jeff, what is your thing with these liberal people, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's, um, you know, because when you say a feminist, there's a lot of caricatures of what that means to some people, and my sense is that yours, your feminism is rooted in a rooted in this understanding of Jesus. So, um, you know, you talk about feminism being a misunderstood debate sometimes on gender in the in the Christian community. So if you don't mind jumping to that end of the pool real quickly for us to start, and then we'll go back to your faith roots after that. So what, what do you tell people when you say, what is this feminist thing all about, Sarah? <laughs> well, I think that, um, you know, I wrote the book a number of years ago, but it sure has become even more relevant today, I think, than it was when, when it came out. And I have probably more conversations about it now than ever before, because I think people are, are, are really wanting to talk about uh, uh, talk about women, talk about what um, Jesus has to say about women and what this means for the church in this moment in time, in this place. I think um, a lot of you as Americans are having a lot of those conversations. Um, and so for me, I always was really comfortable with the word feminist, to be honest. Um, it wasn't really a big you know, big deal for me. I, I always understood it as sort of that really basic um, definition of just being e about equality. It wasn't about hating men. It wasn't about making women more than men. It was really just about equality. And the more I followed Jesus, the more I began to be deeply committed to um, to seeing women flourish, to seeing women's um, you know responsibilities and 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 you know all of those things kind of coming into play through my faith, and so you know when people would you know I'd say something like oh I'm a feminist or whatever else in church, and of course people would clutch their pearls <laughs> and, <laughs> and say something like oh well, what kind of feminist are you you know, and I think that the reason why they were asking that is because they did have a hard time squaring 
their stereotype or their caricature or their picture that maybe media had given them a bit what a feminist is with the person that I am standing in front of them, which to be honest, as a Canadian, I'm very familiar with that feeling because that's how people treat me when I tell them I'm a Christian. Mm. Right. In my world, in a post-Christian context, you know, I would go to work and I would, it would come out somehow in some way that I was a Christian and not just like, my great grandparents being Christian, but I was like one of those crazy Christians who actually believed Jesus said everything he ever he he said, <laughs> and there would always be this moment of pause of them going, well, what kind of Christian, right? Like, <laughs> are you like the one I see on the media? Are you like the one I see on the American side? Are you like this? Are you like that? And so that sort of response, you know, I'm familiar with on both sides, to be honest. And so I would just say like, oh, I'm a Jesus feminist, you know, and that was kind of a cheeky way of me saying, well, I was a feminist because I followed Jesus, that it was because I loved Jesus, because I followed Jesus, that I came to deeply care um, about women, and uh, and in particular, to really believe that the number one place where women should be flourishing is in the body of Christ. Hmm. You know, um, and it might be jumping into your more recent book a little bit here, but one of the things I had, you wrote something in, in one of these places, I think, where you talk. I was reading this. You said I was really frustrated with Paul. I really was having a hard time with this Paul guy in the Bible that wrote all this Bible. And you were like, I don't know if I really like him. And I found myself going, Yeah, I don't know if I really like Paul this time either. <laughs> and then just like a paragraph or two later, you're like, But then I kind of came around on Paul. I'm like, Oh man, now I got to come around on Paul too. But what, <laughs> tell me a little bit about that dynamic because I know there's a lot of you know Christian folks out there, especially that um, maybe somewhere rooted in their their understanding of the New Testament or Paul's writings, you know, that, um, I don't know, they, they might, they might have more of a problem with women equality and all stuff. I mean, I know this seems like a shallow conversation in some ways, but I don't know that some people, I don't know, does this make sense? <laughs> I should add this question no, better, but no, this, this thing know, with Paul and the, mean. yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, and I, and, and I, and the reason why I know what you mean is because I hear this from a lot of people. I mean, they come to me and they're like, look, I, I see it. I see how Jesus was with women. And I see even the that men and women are made in the image of God and that patriarchy was kind of the, the curse of the fall and that that was never God's heart and design for us. And I see all these amazing women in scripture and I see, you know, all of these things happening and, and, I, and I, I, I love it. But there's these couple verses that Paul wrote mm-hmm. and I don't know how to get around them. And a lot of times what they're really asking me is, do I love the Bible? (laughs) (laughs) Do I I love the Bible? Do I respect the Bible? Do I have a high view of scripture? And people are always a bit electrified because I think they've been told for so long that there's only one way to read those, you know, couple of verses that Paul wrote in in a few letters. Um, And so to realize that it's because you love scripture and it's because you respect scripture, because you have a high view of scripture that you've come to be in agreement with Paul, Mm -hmm. because that's the thing that a lot of, not a lot of people realize. And I honestly believe now looking back that if Paul knew how we had taken a couple of, of lines out of a couple of letters and used it to disempower and bench a lot of people who could be preaching the gospel, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it would probably break his heart. Because he was someone who was an empower of women. He worked with women. He had women who were apostles, women who were pastors and leaders and preachers. And, you know, he was someone who who actually practiced a lot of the things that we are talking about. And a lot of that gets lost by the word-by-word trees. Mm. A lot of that forest gets lost by the word-by-word trees that happen there. And so, you know what, I Paul is someone I like because he's just so um, human, 
Like he, he's, he can sometimes be short and he can be angry and then he can be, uh, you know, beautiful and tender and, and, you know, just he's this whole picture of a person. Um, and even he'll say things like, now the Lord hasn't revealed this to me, but this is what I think, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, that sort of thing in his letters. And so, I mean, even seeing the larger context of maybe what we would call those clobber verses yeah. for silencing women or for creating those things. I mean, when you look at the full picture of scripture and the full picture of even who Paul was, then that gives you the context and understanding for, oh, okay, well, that, that makes more sense. That That's more in line with Paul. That's more in line with scripture. That's more in line with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really what we all want, right, is to be more in line with Jesus. Yeah. And I, and I think you had uh, somewhere along the way, you had a line I really appreciated to that end where you said that patriarchy, I think you said, was the backdrop of the Bible, but not the mandate of the Bible. And I thought that was a really helpful way of saying, describing what you just did more fully, really. Well, actually, uh, that one came from uh, Carolyn Custis James. She wrote oh, an really? amazing book about a year ago. I, I've, I've uh, quoted her in a couple of places on it, but she wrote a book called Maelstrom that's about the effect of that understanding or a patriarchal reading of scripture or of culture, the effect that has on men who are made in the image of God. Mm. And it's a really freeing and beautiful book, but she, she, I, I've quoted her in a couple of places. I love that line, oh, that yeah. patriarchal the backdrop of the Bible, but not the mandate of the Bible. Yeah, and I know you've quoted Pete Inns. We had him on the show not too long ago, and and um, it really it is an interesting shift that starts to happen when when you start to reexamine the scriptures in a fresh way, and it's still actually sometimes even a higher um, mm-hmm. way of engaging scripture. But for a lot of folks, it can seem like that you're you know going off the reservation because you've stepped outside of this really fixed understanding of what one or two verses might oh, have. Oh, Pete Enns is a troublemaker. He's the best. <laughs> He He's is an so instigator, good. isn't he? I love him. <laughs> now, wait, as you're like a peacemaker, though, right? You said you're like a I nine am. on the Enneagram. So, oh, is that ironic? Yeah, it is. You know, peacemakers aren't supposed to be instigators, but nevertheless. No. Well, I look. Well, I think what's so funny about it is, you know, my, my base level self is very much conflict averse, peacemaking. I understand, you know, kind of everybody's point of view. And yet, you know what, God has called me and has, you know, my vocation and my work and my passions, all these things intersect on all these things that you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. And so, <laughs> you know, there's, there's got to be room for those of us who are, you know, peacemakers within these really difficult conversations, I think. But yeah, it was definitely a learning curve for me. <laughs> uh, well, well, look, let's go before you became Sarah Bessie, Jesus feminist. Okay, let's go to your earlier days. And um, when you first came to faith, I know you said your family was sort of first generational. Your parents were kind of came to Jesus when you were, what, a teenager or something? Yeah, I would have been probably about the age of my own kids now, so maybe 10, 10-ish. Okay. Yeah. So what, my, yeah, so we, we they were first generation Christians in that, like a lot of Canadians in the area where we lived, I mean, different parts of Canada, much like the United States, have different religious you know, kind of uh, backdrops or stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and ours was was very post-Christian. So it was like my great-grandparents were the last generation that went to church. Okay. Well, one of the things I thought that was, and this is sort of moving into your um, your more recent book, Out of Sorts, which is fantastic. Um, you know, the subtitle was Thank Making you. Peace with an Involving Faith. But for folks that want to just kind of um, uh, engage what it looks like to hold on to your questions and, and lean into them, um, 
which is right at the heartbeat of sort of what we do here with Firo's questions. I just can't I can't recommend it highly enough. It's just it really is a great read. But in that you I, I kind of laugh because you said that listening to bullfrogs and butterflies on a record actually helped lead to your family's salvation. And could you just tell me about that real quick? That was just funny. <laughs> Well, this is one of those stories that I like to tell whenever people like to get all tied in knots about the way that we do things. Because so often we create like, this is the track, this is the only way God can move. If we don't do it right, then this all, you know, all all hell will break loose or whatever else, right? And I'm not someone who's against, you know, strategic planning by any stretch. That's actually my background. But this always makes me laugh because we, we didn't know anything about God. My parents had never been really gone to church at all. It was not at all on their their radar. Their parents certainly didn't. Um, And nobody in their life and their world did. And we had this um, family that moved in across the alley from my granny. And they were Mennonite. And they had moved out from Manitoba. We were living in Saskatchewan at the time. And they had four daughters that were teenagers. And my mom, who had grown up in a home that was, um, you know, not exactly a stable um would look across the alley and think well they all like each other mm-hmm. and they're you know, they a really lovely family look they've got a garden you know <laughs> <laughs> you know she just thought that they were wonderful and so she you know befriended them and their daughters began babysitting for our family and the eldest daughter uh went away to church camp i don't know what mennonites do at church camp probably canning or something i don't know but uh, <laughs> so she went away to teenager church camp and they did what you usually do with teenagers that go to church camp they say things like you know you should be telling people about jesus and you know be on fire and blah 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 and she came home and was like well i live in a pretty small you know closed world but i do babysit for these heathens and (laughs) that was you that was you okay (laughs) they were the heathens (laughs) and so she went and spent her babysitting money on a record from the 1970s i'm really dating myself here and um a record record players i think they call them vinyls now yeah right and uh she bought a record called bullfrogs and butterflies that was you know four kids right so it was like you know bullfrogs and butterflies have both been born again and you know nothing compares to knowing god not even riding your bike you know and all these other different <laughs> things and my sister and i really liked it and we would listen to it we didn't really have a lot of that you know records and so you know back in that, those days you would listen to like one record over and over and over and over again we really liked it but when we were at school um my mom would sit at home alone with that record player and listen to the record over and over again and cry and cry because it was the first time she'd ever heard the gospel mm. And that was really what planted the seed for her turning to my dad and saying, I think that maybe the thing that we are longing for is Jesus. I think that maybe we need we need to to be people who figure out what that is. And my dad was like, what? You know, <laughs> so, you know it just began this whole journey that we ended up having. And I mean, just there's so many different points along the way, but it really everything began for us because one babysitter spent her babysitting money on a record. And it not only changed my parents' lives, but it changed my sister and I, and now our children, now we're into you know this third generation of people who are walking with Jesus, mm-hmm. and how many lives are connected to our lives um, because of one 14-year-old girl. How about that? So cute. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm interested. You, you, know, you talk about your family coming to know Jesus that way, um, and then... But one of the, one of the things you've talked about in your book, at least, is that Jesus seemed really very real to you in those early days, and um, and when I when I was reading that and I was thinking about your story, I thought you know that seems to be a common sentiment with a lot of people um, that when they first come to faith in Jesus, there's just this real nearness and a special 
just a real comfort and a sense of um, very presence with God. Um, and for a lot of people, that sense of realness of who Jesus is in their life seems to wane over time. And I just wonder if you've experienced that to be true. I mean, that's just my observation with a lot of people. I don't know if you've experienced that to be true or if you have what you think that might be about. Um, well, I definitely did did find that to be true. Um, you know, now that I look back on it, uh, you know, over the over the years, um, I don't know. I'm probably dating myself a little bit on this one too. But um, back in in the early early Wild West days of the internet, when <laughs> things were just kind of starting and nobody had heard of Facebook or anything like that, there was a blog called Internet Monk uh, by Michael Spencer. And he coined this phrase that um, really, for me, identified and continues to identify that disenchantment with religion, and particularly with Christianity, is that one of the things that he identified and, and that I've, I've really connected with is this idea that we become really, really good at following churchianity instead of Christianity. Hmm. And so, for me, I felt like oftentimes the more that I became wrapped up in church stuff or church things or, you know, what about this and what about that and doctrine that and theology this and who's in and who's out and here's the line at the sand and who's in charge and, you know, whatever else, it felt like I lost Jesus in there. Hmm. And I think a lot of people can feel that way. They feel like they lose Jesus in church, which is a, a real tragedy. Um, instead of it being a place where they're around people who who love and know and follow Jesus, that it you know we become really good adherents of churchianity. Um, and for me, learning how to disengage from that was a mess. Like it was a disaster. <laughs> I don't know that I did it well, right? Like I look back on it now, and I had, you know, I was cynical and I was filled with doubt about everything I thought about church. I had no idea how to read the Bible. Church people drove me crazy. I didn't even <laughs> want to call myself a Christian anymore because I was like, whatever these people are up to, and I ain't that, you know. Like, yeah. I don't want affiliated with it anymore you know and there were all these different you know points and and things that I was struggling with about what I thought about um you know every like you know we were talking about having Pete Anzal like how you read the bible or um you know what it means for the world justice um you know the church's historical complicity in certain things you know just all these different areas um and so yeah I did feel like I'd lost Jesus in there but the funny thing is is that you know, just like church people don't own Jesus, Jesus is just as present within church people. And this drove me crazy because <laughs> I could not let go of it. And the more that I follow Jesus, the more that I wanted to peel back these layers of churchianity to really be like, I want to follow Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, the place where Jesus led me back to was the church. Hmm. And that now I have become convinced that there is no more painful and broken and yet beautiful and redemptive place than the Church of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Well, well, tell me a little bit more about that because you know you you talk about finding you know finding your way with Jesus, finding your way back to this the the church, this loving place. But you talked about it as an industrial kind of institutional type thing for a bit that you you just described kind of this like how do I you know stay connected to this, some of the madness that you experience sometimes. Um, how did you rediscover Jesus and all? Because I think I've I've heard you say that that um, you almost like disconnected from church for a bit, if that's a fair way to oh, say I it. Oh, I did. Okay. Well, I did go for six years. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, that, that's an official that's disconnection then. <laughs> I think that's pretty fair. <laughs> well, Assessment there. <laughs> well, okay. We'll just start there. What what drove you away? I mean, you know, we you touched on it, but what causes somebody who's you know fairly connected in the church? Your husband was a pastor, I think, right? And yeah. And then you guys were like, we're out of here. It wasn't awkward at all. 
<laughs> no, because, um, you know, we, I did, I did walk away from the church. I had a lot of thoughts and opinions on the institutional value of church, uh, became a very much an anti-institutionalist in a lot of ways of just feeling like, you know, it needed to be, um, you know, reinvented and reimagined. And I, you know, I think that there's still a lot of, of room in a lot of those conversations. And at the same time that I was tacking really hard in that direction and hardly even able to go to church without having something I would probably, you know, uh, you know, some milder form of PTSD, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. My husband was tacking really hard towards wanting to go to seminary and, um, you know, wanting to to talk more about, you know, authority and, you know, what does it mean to, to be the church? And, you know, so we were, you know, going in totally opposite directions, even in terms of our spirituality. And, and yet, by continuing to walk and continuing to love one another well in that place, we ended up in a very similar space. We just came at it from different directions. Um, and and we did manage to do it together. And so, you know, there's a lot of things within that um, time period that I look at. But one of the things that I remember really clearly was how I clung to this idea that Jesus was, was different. Mm-hmm. That even if I felt like I had lost Jesus in there, even if I had a lot of questions about what we did and how we did it and why and whatever else, some core part of me always thought, I want, I, I want him. Hmm. I want to know who he is. And so, even for the time period where I stopped, you know, calling myself a Christian because I didn't want to be aligned with all of that, I would still be like, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's what I am. I'm a follower of Jesus. That's what I'm going to be. And then I remember it like it was yesterday because I remember actually this conversation with my husband. It was in our kitchen. And I remember looking at him and saying, you know, if I'm going to call myself a follower of Jesus, I should probably figure out who he is. <laughs> it, seemed, <laughs> it, was, it seems obvious, so but, you know. <laughs> but it was really the first time in a long time that I thought, who is he? And so I began where, you know, most good Protestants begin, which is in the Bible. And I did it the way that I always do things because I'm charismatic and um, I came from a more of a charismatic background. So, of course, it's got to be sloppy and experiential. (laughs) And so between those two things, you know, I ended up spending a lot of time in scripture and doing a lot of research and a lot of reading. And I would read the Gospels over and over and over again. And I was just so flabbergasted by who Jesus actually was. It wasn't this nice moral person who just wanted everybody to be nice to each other and get along like that there was, it was electrifying and it was different and it was upside down. And there was this whole new thing being inaugurated. And, you know, the more I wrestled with it, the more I just began to feel um, like the weirdness was the very thing that I was craving. Um, and the, the demand of it was so inviting. And I remember even a few years later, it probably was a year or two into this, this process. I remember reading, I think I was reading uh, Luke six. So it would have been the Sermon on the Mount. And I was reading the Sermon on the Mount for, you know, the umpteenth time in that 18 months. And I remember slamming my Bible shut and looking at my husband with tears running down my face and saying, I would follow that guy. I would follow that guy. No wonder everybody dropped their nets and chased after him. No wonder every marginalized and oppressed woman within 30 miles was showing up just to be near him. No wonder every kid couldn't get enough of him. No wonder everybody who was in power was threatened by him. I understand. I would follow that guy. Mm. And everything changed for me in those moments after that of saying, you know what, it's not just I'm a follower of Jesus and that means I'm going to be nice to people. Like that this is a whole new way of being human. And I want to figure out this way. Hmm. So good. I mean, um, sorry, I was actually your your description of like I would follow this guy. You know, I'm 
for whatever reason, it was flashing back to like Braveheart when not that you, I don't know if you've even seen the movie, but when he's talking about the Bruce, he's like, I would follow that. You know, I would, this is what I would follow. And I think there is something in us when, when you see, um, I don't know when you see what a, what a pure heart, it looks like that you're like, I, I would, I would want to be around that. I'd want to be around Jesus. Um, you know, when I, when I hear you doing that, so you guys, you and Brian kind of, you leave the church, um, you're wrestling through your faith. You're trying to say, okay, I still love Jesus. I want to find out what he's about. Um, and so I understand that part of the journey. I wonder what it was like on a practical level, because when you leave church, especially if Brian was a pastor, that your world is pretty intricately woven together with those folks, I imagine. And so when you leave, you know, I wonder what that experience was like. Um, while I, while we can see the trajectory of how you've kind of come back in a new way back to the church, what was that dynamic like with your interpersonal relationships with people as you went down that road? You know, I think it was difficult. Um, you know, I, I look back on it now and I have a lot of regrets, mm-hmm. uh, to be perfectly honest. I have things that I didn't do well. Um, you know, sometimes you're storming around in all of your newfound zeal and you, you know, don't see sometimes what's right in front of you. Uh, you're hard on the people. You know, and a lot of that I think is is normal. And now, from this standpoint of you know some more maturity and looking back on it, I mean, yes, it's a bit cringy, but at the same time, it's entirely normal because in a lot of ways that's the path that we follow in our spiritual formation, mm-hmm. right? The way that we understand um, the world is often in the beginning very literal. It's very if this then that, and this is the right way, and anything that threatens anything that's within that right way of doing things, then that's you know an enemy. And oftentimes we hang on to those um, that same way of understanding the world, even when maybe our opinions are shifting. Mm-hmm. And really, that's that's the the shift I think the of maturity that we begin to want to see is that it doesn't matter necessarily how right your opinions are, or maybe that you finally landed on a doctrine of the atonement that you think is just <laughs> bang on. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. But really, what we're asking is, do you look like Jesus? Mm-hmm. Are you are you carrying the fruit of the spirit? And so for Brian and I, it was a really fraught time because not only did we were was I personally going through this major, you know, almost, you know, relinquishment with my the faith that I thought I knew and understood, which there's a lot of grief attached to. We were personally going through a lot of grief. Um, you know, our church was in a time of, of major um, turmoil, and we ended up leaving, uh, you know, on the tail end of that after staying th- for a while through the transitions. and. Mm ended up leaving ministry, so there were huge uh, questions of um, vocation and identity for my husband. Uh, And then even personally, we uh, were in a season of grief because we had lost uh, uh, several children before birth due to miscarriage. So all of these things were all kind of colliding at one time, and the the grief and the that uh, that often launches us into the wilderness or into this season of questioning or this season of figuring out what it is that you want to carry and what is it you want to lay down or whatever else. I mean, those are those are really real things. Mm. And the tendency that we have when we're in those moments is uh, is either to you know to double down on what has always worked and I'm fine, we're fine, just stay put, stay the course, do what you need to do, or we think we got to burn it all down. Mm. And I mean, I definitely was more in the burn it down sort of category. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. But learning how to find that third way of um, you know of leaning into that pain of trusting that there was an invitation in the pain, Mm -hmm. of um, letting it transform us, of um, seeing that by leaning into it, there could be 
you're leaning into that tension and order and, and even the fear and the grief you know and trusting that that God is there in that place too mm. um, so a lot of relationships shifted for us uh, we moved we moved back home to Canada we left the United States we were living in the states for a few years there um, you know reestablishing ourselves reestablishing what does it mean to be um, if you don't have a church how do you make friends mm. you know like <laughs> those most basic things. <laughs> You know, so having to start all over in every way, and yet we never could have imagined all the crazy places where you find community, where you find your people, um, you know, the journey that it's led us on. And then the thing that's been really sweet is doubling back, you know, 15 years later um, with a lot of those people who were there with us during that time or who maybe were a part of our life during that season and either making amends or connecting or realizing that we weren't as alone as we thought or that there was um, people who were praying for us, people who were loving us, even when we were probably a bit unlovable, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and seeing reconciliation and, and relationship happening even then a few years later. Uh, it's been really sweet. Mm. I just got two follow-up questions to that. To that part of your story one i wonder if you could take a second and when you talk about you you kind of alluded to stages of faith development and i've heard you talk about this a little bit i wonder if you could just explain what that what that looks like to folks not just the kind of first and second naivete but the sort of those six stages of development that and how the church sometimes can get people stuck Oh, sure. Um, you know, this is one of those things that I feel is really important for us to talk about as a church. And oh, hold on just a second here. Okay. No worries. Sorry, I just had somebody walk in. <laughs> I have four children, and it's always a little bit of a BBC dad situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not on video, so no. Okay, so no, that's good. <laughs> nobody throwing good. kids outdoors will be documented. <laughs> I think we're good. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that um, that I really ended up finding uh, really uh, helpful during um, a lot of this later on was seeing how often uh, people had uh, done research or done work or, you know, had, had kind of leaned into this idea and seen over and over and over again that um, that it was healthy. And that it was that it was good, um, you know that that these sorts of, of shifts and changes. I mean, oftentimes I don't know that we necessarily shepherd people really well during all of those uh, those seasons, and it can be a little bit, um, you know, terrifying for people. Um, but one of the ones that I ended up uh, stumbling across uh, even before I wrote my second book, um, which is more about a lot of these things, was James Fowler. And he wrote this academic study that um, I want to say it was called Stages of Faith. And so he goes through like these six stages of faith. Um, and, and oftentimes they mirror even like our human development. Right. And so, you know, when you're in that stage two, right, you're you called it like mythic literal, which I mentioned earlier. Right. You can't really tell the difference between imagination and reality. And, you know, you really like the cause and effect sort of thing if this then that you know the black and white thing and you know in in a lot of ways i see myself at certain points within my um my faith journey and say you know i can see the pattern of if i pray this way then i get this result Mm -hmm. right if i'm good then i'm going to have a good life 
Um, you know, if, as long as I continue to really stand on the word, you know, nothing bad's ever going to happen. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Right? <laughs> and even sometimes we can be in that stage even uh, as parents, I find, because a lot of uh, things that are, are written towards parents are in this mythic literal thing. If you parent the right way, your kids are going to do good oh. and they're going to turn out right, that it all rests on you. That if you do this, it's a very cause and effect sort of relationship, a control aspect almost. And then he talks about in this, like, you know, in stage three, you kind of move into this idea of, con- of that you're beginning to conform to that authority, mm-hmm. right? So anything that doesn't fit with the faith that you've been given, you reject it, right? And so conflict is really feared or ignored. And one thing I thought that was really interesting, very provocative, actually, mm-hmm. is that he makes the argument that 90, like a vast majority of our churches function best when people are at stage three. Mm-hmm. That almost all of our religious institutions function best when we are people who conform to authority, who see outside influences as as conflict or threats or as enemies um, to be ignored, uh, you know, that we are a cause and effect even sort of people, that mm. our churches really function best and are geared around people who are in stage three. Which may in fact be true, it may function better, but it does have a bit of uh, conflict sometimes after you start trying to figure out what Jesus was really like, yeah? Exactly. <laughs> Messes things up. Jesus is the best slash worst. <laughs> so, so the church gets stuck at stage three sometimes, but just for people listening, what come, what kind of comes after that? Oh, so then there's like stage four would be like that angst or that struggle, right? Beginning to have some openness to conflicts and questions. Um, you know, there's often like some threshold of change that happens there where people are saying, wait a minute, the, if this, then that isn't holding up. And so you kind of enter this like critical distance or this time of like wandering through that. So that kind of pushes you through stage five. And as you kind of continue to keep moving through there, oftentimes he calls uh, stage six um, this idea of universalizing. Right. And so you think about people like Mother Teresa or you think about people like even the Dalai Lama or, you know, um, Desmond Tutu. Right. They come to this place of compassion and love and grace and this like this enlightenment of seeing, you know, God and seeing one another and this openness and this inclusion and this wholeness Mm -hmm. that seems to permeate and go beyond, you know, that black and white. You know, here's the only way to understand it sort of thing. Well, and so. You know, for where a lot of my listeners, um, when we deal with fearless questions, we're kind of like maybe trying to um, help them into stage four, but they're starting into stage four, you know, starting to engage with some questions. And and so I, I appreciate you, you know, helping us in this space here as we try and, you know, encourage folks on in that direction. Um, and this is as they get through stage four, I feel like that's when everybody gets like Richard Rohr's like the gateway drug to the, to the stages <laughs> after that or something. <laughs> but. Um, he's like the, he's like the marijuana of enlightenment. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but just as we, you know, we're talking about this, going back to your own kind of story there for a minute. The second part of that fault I was kind of thinking of was you, you mentioned like needing to lean into the pain. So you had some real, in fact, when you were talking, I almost wanted in my spirit, it's almost, you almost want to give, you feel this need to give a you know moment of silence for people that might even be listening that, when you share your stories of loss really quickly, but when you start talking about multiple miscarriages and a loss of, you know, connection and identity and, and calling and all those things, it's sort of like, and you think of all the folks that even are with us here in the conversation that families falling apart and jobs and identities and all stuff. And especially then you start getting to the, wow, when you're, when your connection with God suddenly is not what you felt like it had been in the past. It's a very Mm -hmm. unsettling thing. Um, but you talked about leaning into that pain and I've, and I've heard you 
uh, compare it to um, to childbirth in some ways. And I wonder if you might be able to expand on that just briefly. Yeah. Um, you know, it was funny for me. Um, and by funny, I mean, like, messed my life up sort of way. Okay. <laughs> but uh, so I've, I've been pregnant eight times. Um, and I only have four children. Mm. And a, a big part. Uh, so for me, a lot of these questions are not um, seminary discussions. Mm. They're not academic questions. They're not things that I write papers about that nobody will ever read. Like we're talking about real people with real lives and real um, grief and, and, and loss and, right. and things that are on the other side of that, whether it's jobs or relationships or family and, you know, or even the, the way that they always knew God. Mm. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of grief about relinquishing the God that you thought you knew. Mm. Um, and so for me, one of the things when I was um, pregnant with my, my eldest daughter now, so this would have been you know 11 or 12 years ago, I remember coming across um, uh, a lot of theology in birth and in studying birth. And the more that I had babies and and gave birth to babies, both ones that we were able to bring home and babies that I gave birth to too soon, um, mm. I began to realize that there was so, so much rich spiritual um, healing in that process for me. Not every woman experiences that way, and I'm certainly not saying that everybody needs to, to see it the way that I do in this regard, but I remember coming across um, Dr. William Sears talked about how in the process of actually giving birth and in labor, um, women will enter this thing that he called the fear, tension, pain cycle. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure almost any woman who's given birth could have told him about it, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but he talked about how when you are in pain, um, you become, uh, you tense up mm. and you resist the pain. And so then you become more afraid because you're tense and you're in pain. And then the more fear you have, the more pain you feel. And then the more pain you feel, the more tension you feel. And so you keep going through this like fear, tension, pain cycle. And the longer you stay in it, the more intense it becomes. And so that's oftentimes when women are in labor, why um, it can seem like it's escalating sometimes all of a sudden really fast. It's often because you get on almost this merry-go-round of like fear, tension, pain, and not able to break out of it. And I was really struck by that because it sounded a lot like um, – you know, a lot of spiritual journey, right? You have, you have, you're experiencing pain. And so you resist it, you tense up against it, and then you feel more afraid. And then that creates more pain. And then that creates more tension. And so you kind of feel this, this same um, uh, struggle and pain that's in there. And the only way to disrupt that cycle is to lean into the pain. Hmm. And I've given birth to Eight, eight children, four of them are still here. Um, and my four children that I've given birth with, I saw that in particular over and over because they were all full term. And and I will remember the difference, the moment where I would realize that I was in the cycle. And I remember that moment of saying, I've got to lean into the pain. Hmm. And I've got to embrace it. And I've got to work with it. And I've got to welcome it like a teacher and let it lead me as opposed to resisting it. And in that moment, not only was the pain more manageable, I mean, it certainly doesn't mean that the pain goes away, right. but it means that the tension decreases. You feel like you're cooperating with your pain. Your pain is now your teacher. Your pain is now your guide. And then it is amazing how the fear disappears. And you can begin to follow that invitation all the way through to new life. 
And so seeing that over and over and over again in my own life, I began to see this parallel with a lot of our spiritual pain or, or, or even when we are in the midst of maybe giving birth to some new version of ourselves or the Holy Spirit is giving birth to some new version of us, mm-hmm. you know, that there's always an invitation to trust your pain as your guide and as your, as your leader in that moment. Hmm. Well, a couple, when you talk about you have this moment where you, you decide you're going to sort of give into the pain, like you're going to start to work with it as opposed to fighting it. Um, and I know it's, you know, it, it's a illustration, so it may not, it may break down eventually here, but was there any, what, what brings you to that point? You know, as we try to make the parallel, you know, as we think through our own faith journeys and, you know, in your experience, what has been the impetus for either yourself or others you've seen that has, that becomes that tipping point, you know, is there circumstance usually for folks or, cause I'm thinking of people listening right now thinking, you know, I'm, I hear I am stuck in this deal and I'm, I keep asking God to help, you know, help me through this pain. And I feel the tension and all this. If, if they're listening right now, what is, you know, if we're keeping our eyes up looking for what that tipping point might be to help us slide towards the others, you know, leaning into things, is there anything you might say towards that? Uh, there's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, something that I found really important for me, um, both in, uh, you know, in, in birth, but probably more in, in spiritual life, it's probably a little bit more universal, since everybody's experiences with birth are so unique, um, has been really, for me, um, embracing a more of a midwifery model of care. I'm a huge proponent of midwives and and worked uh, quite a bit with midwives in my, my work and even now continue to advocate for midwives. Um, and the difference of not of seeing the experience not as a, an Ill ailment to be thwarted, but as a healthy process you're meant to walk through. Okay. Um, and so that's been a, an important thing for me is not seeing it as something to treat or make go away or shorten, but instead to see it as as an important that everything has a purpose and that it's, you know, that it's, it's what we're meant to do and it's healthy to walk through. Um, but then on the other side, I would say that I, my husband always jokes that he knows now better than any nurse or midwife or anyone around me when I'm about to have the baby because it's inevitably the moment where I say, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) I'm done. (laughs) I'm totally done. And he's like, okay, we're ready to go. (laughs) And so he could always call it way better than I could. We uh, we always used to joke that he was like the mandula. And there was like this this moment I think that often happens right before you're almost there where you do say, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. I quit. Mm. I'm out. And I think that's a temptation. And sometimes you do need to take a minute to catch your breath. But oftentimes within your spirituality, the moment when you feel like you can't do it anymore, you're really close to being through to some serious breakthrough. Mm. Um, and uh, and I see that over and over again. It's not necessarily a metaphor that will work for everyone, but for me, oftentimes when I begin to feel that sense of like I can't do it, I'm done. I've hit my I've hit my limit. Um, that in that moment, that oftentimes you're really really close to something shifting, uh, mm. some some form of breakthrough. Mm. Well, you're you're telling this story, and two things just keep going through my mind. I can't, so I'll share them because I can't help but not. But one is my I have a family member who is a is a doula, and I was helping record create this video DVD of them, all these different natural childbirthing situations. And I can't unsee any of that, but, um, <laughs> which is so Jody and I uh, have experienced some, that's great. But when I didn't know anything about it, that was, there was some different kind of things out there. It's uh, pretty real. <laughs> it, it's very real. It's very real. And Jody listens, watches, um, some 
midwife. You talk about midwife, some midwife British TV show. And um, I didn't know what she was watching at first. All I know is I would come into the room and just be people screaming all the time. I'm like, what are you watching? She's like, it's a beautiful show. So It is. I remember, I remember one time I was uh, talking at a seminary and they said, what's the number one thing that you would do immediately to, to change seminary? I was like, I would make every seminary student watch Call the Midwife. That <laughs> <laughs> was like one of the first things that jumped in my head. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, um, one of the reasons I, I, I really appreciate you um, kind of touching on both these sides of things, because when people are getting stuck and they're at that point where they feel like they can't do anymore and they're stuck with their problems with God, and it's like, Lord, I've tried so hard. What do I do now? Um, I do think it's significant to hear folks like yourself say, hey, this is natural. This is normal. In fact, if you kind of understand what a normal faith development looks like, it's possible you're just moving into a new stage and don't don't fight that. You know, it's it's actually a good thing. So knowing that that's yeah. possible can be helpful for people. Um, I do want to say I'm really sorry for your loss. I think that um, just as a side note with your the babies that you lost, um, I feel like that's one of the most ungrieved things in our society that people mm. um, just that there's women and men that. Um, I've never really been given space to talk about that sort of thing. And um, so, yeah, I'm just, I'm sorry that you had to go through that so many times. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, in a different pace, a different note, I first of all, I was laughing because in all this journey of yours, at some point you're in a Christian school situation. You talked about being an RA, um, making church checks or something for people. And oh, I, had, yeah. I had to laugh all of a sudden. I was like, okay, I know this person because we... Jody and I met at a Christian university where we had chapel like all the time. And so we had chapel checks and it was slash and dash, you know, cross off your name and skip, <laughs> skip church and all that stuff. But, um, you know, when you're, you're kind of, when you untangle so much of your personal identity and faith from, from institutional, that institutional complex you talked about in the church, but then you boomerang back around and find Jesus in a fresh way and reconnect with sort of the, I don't know if you want to say the body of Christ or the institutional body of Christ in the church. Um, what are the questions, you know, as, you, as you've as you moved forward here, what are the questions that you wish people were asking? Because you've done such a beautiful job of in your work and even today and sharing the questions you have had and have kind of worked through. What are the, the questions that you face moving forward now in your own journey that you wish other people were talking about more? Hmm, that's a good question. Um you know, there's a number of things that that jump into into my my mind that I've or, or questions that have been haunting me lately is probably a better way to to put it because I'm I'm not really sure necessarily that that they're always universal. Um, one of the things that has, is a question that's been jumping into my mind more and more. Uh, a girlfriend of mine asked this once at a conference we were at. We were um, speaking at a at a conference, and oftentimes when I'm when I'm preaching or I'm teaching or I'm in a room, I'm oftentimes the only woman there. Okay. Um, and you know, inevitably, the question that she asked me one time or, or that she asked this room full of, of men was, you need to begin to ask yourself who's missing. And so now I find whenever I'm in church or whenever I'm at a, 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 in a position of influence or leadership or power or having any of these conversations around, um, you know, faith and spirituality or justice or whatever else, I find that question has really been haunting me of who's missing, whose voice is missing, whose perspective is missing, who's, who is it that's missing? in the room and then begin to look for them. Um, because I think that that there's a lot of richness that can come when we listen to one another, when we hear from one another, um, when we begin to ask who's missing. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one thing that has been in my mind a lot lately. 
uh, particularly within the church. Um, and honestly, the other one that has uh, been, I, I think I will never probably stop wrestling with is um, is probably questions more related to uh, does this does this would people know that I love Jesus from this? Hmm. Um, because a lot of times, whether we're talking about scripture, or we're talking about theology or doctrine or politics or you know caring for the least of these or you know anything from um, you know public policy to you know whatever. You know, a lot of the things that I think that um, that I'm often chasing down is 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 not in some trite, you know, what would Jesus do sort of way, although that's yeah. not a bad question, <laughs> but more a sense of does this does this smell like Jesus? Does mm. this look like Jesus? Would someone uh, feel loved? Is this something that love would want to do here? Mm. And beginning to ask, you know, what would love want to do here? What would love want to say in this situation? Who would love want to stand beside? Um, beginning to see it through those those eyes has really profoundly changed me, um, and I think it's profoundly changed my family. And I think that as we begin to ask those questions more communally, I think it has has a lot of potential to change the world. Mm, good stuff. Food for thought. Food for thought for all of us. Um, well, look, Sarah, we're I want to respect your time, and we we probably need to wrap up here. Um, first, just say that. Let me just say thank you for for spending some time with us and and sharing your heart with us. Um, I do hope people, you've, we mentioned before, you've written a few books, you wrote Jesus Feminist, Out of Sorts, they can get a copy of. Um, any new books in the work yet? Or Oh, yeah. Always? Um, yeah, always. I've got okay. a new one I'm working on. It's actually due at the end of this month, and it'll probably be oh, out next year. Uh, I can't believe I you had time it. to talk then. Like <laughs> I know. I My husband's looking at me like, you know, a shower would be good. <laughs> <laughs> But here we are. Oh. <laughs> We're going to get it done. <laughs> oh. Well, people need to run up by your books. If not, go to your blog, com or org. I, for, I always just pops up now when I type in. Is it one or the other? com, And okay. that's the jumping off for everything, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and the blog and my speaking schedule and the books. Uh, yeah. I'm not on Snapchat. I'm too old for that crap. <laughs> so <laughs> everything else, though, should all be there. <laughs> um, yeah, people, check out your blog. Seriously, there's you wrote a recent post about like drinking and giving up drinking, and that seemed to really spark a massive conversation. So there's actually a lot of very interactive stuff oh, going yeah. on there. Yeah. I never would have expected a blog post about sanctification to go quite as far as it did. But no, that was a good conversation for sure. So. And, and just one last thing for people to hear, you know, in your in your bio, you put down that you are an unqualified theologian. And I find that I just I wanted to say that because if people have listened to you here, I don't think you went to seminary, did you? No, yeah, no, and, I just make up my own seminary. I do a lot. I'm a, I'm a big geek who reads a lot. That's all I am. <laughs> well, the only reason I wanted to bring attention to that is I just I hope that people listening realize that. You don't have to be at seminary to to pursue understanding God better and to walk with Him and Uh-oh. and and learn valuable stuff that that the rest of the world could really. Um, people need to hear your voice and others' voices. I just I think you're very qualified, so I appreciate you, you sharing with us. So. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate that. Right. Yeah, well, look, good Sa- to hear from all of us. Okay, Th- Sarah, thanks so much for your time today, and uh, we'll hopefully catch up with you in the near future. All right. I hope so too. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Bye.